Well, if you have your Bible this morning or something that has a Bible inside of it, open up to Exodus chapter 34 this morning. And if you are new to our Sunday morning setting, uh, we are thrilled to have you this morning. We have been studying through the book of Exodus off and on, but we are about to finish our study in the book of Exodus in the next few weeks here. Uh, but if, you, if you've never read through the book of Exodus, it's, it's a very important, sort of a cornerstone book for understanding much of the Bible. Because in this unique story, God, in his mercy, reaches into a horrible setting, the land called Egypt. And he brings out of that setting a people for himself that he had made promises to years ago. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and engages them in a relationship, spells out that relationship and what we know as the Ten Commandments, many of us know that, but that's a part of a much bigger plan that God had for these people. And two weeks ago, we, we traveled through their story to the point in which God has made this special arrangement for them. They have agreed to it. And then in just a short period of time, they have turned away from that agreement and they have built that famous golden calf, right? This is a, everybody knows about the golden calf. You, you never read Exodus. You know the Ten Commandments and you know the golden calf story. So they've made this golden calf and they've turned away from God. And God has responded to this thing the Bible calls idolatry. We get introduced to or get clarified on this concept of idolatry that exists for human beings. And God responds to their idolatry. And his response is strong. It is angry, which is informing for us as to, you know, do you believe in a God who gets angry? Right? In the day and age in which we live, these are not points to overlook in, in the Bible. But the Bible presents an angry God in this moment. And he almost a threatening God as well in this setting. And God is sending the message that I'm done with you guys. And then we get here to Exodus 34. So that was Exodus chapter 32. And then we're going to fast forward today, just a matter of days, to this passage in Exodus chapter 34. And let's read here with me, starting in verse 8. God has revealed himself to Moses yet again on the, up on the mountain. And it says in verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a, a stiff-necked people. And, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And in verse 10, God said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is, in, it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. And he goes on and lists all these enemies God will drive out. Let's pray for a moment. Father, these words that you have preserved are like no other words that we encounter because your word is alive. You have made it so. You are the living God who speaks words that continue to penetrate our lives and bring life to us. And so, Lord, that's the opportunity set before us this morning, not just to listen to somebody speak, not just to read something in a book, but to have living words penetrate our lives and impart life to us. And, and that's why we're here. And that's what we ask you to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I, I want to answer the question, is there life after idolatry? What these guys have done in this setting, they've created a golden calf and in a sense, and the Bible actually calls it this, they have, they have committed spiritual adultery 
on God. And you know, many folks unfortunately find themselves in a place where something like that affects a marriage that they're in or someone that they're close to or maybe they grew up in a family where adultery touched this unique relationship between a man and a woman. And, and it's a legitimate question. Is there life after that? Will things continue after such a grievous offense has occurred? And so we're in this place today asking that question. The God of the universe has made it clear this is highly offensive to him. And so then we have the question, well, what will become of this relationship between God and man? Is it done? Is it done for? Is, is there life after spiritual adultery with God? And so in Exodus 32, that question mark gets installed. But in Exodus chapter 34, there is this awareness that yes, there is life. And life is going to continue in this moment, right? Here's where we left off in Exodus 32 verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a nation of you. So in the midst of God's displeasure, he reveals something to Moses that I'm going to wipe out these people and I'm going to start again. All right, so that's the response. And Moses, has, by the way, got no reason to believe that's not what's about to happen here. He's got nothing in him that's like, oh, you know, I, I'm, I don't think you would do that. I think this is for real. This is a God he's coming to know. That this holy, righteous God could do this. And clearly in this moment, it feels as though this relationship that's been established is now broken. Which I don't want us to overlook something here. God clearly has, in his relating to man, installed expectations on man. And that needs to be clear to us as well. It's not as though God is in a relationship with man where... You know, he's just so loving and ooey-gooey and caring that he doesn't even notice when we do anything wrong. That's just the kind of God he is. He's not all that bent out of shape. He's not like your uptight grandmother or something. Sorry, grandmothers. Uh, nor does grandparent dad should probably pick on somebody else. Uh, that's not how God is. Well, apparently, he's pretty uptight about this. And he's uptight about it because there were expectations on men. In this relationship that got forged at Mount Sinai and spelled out. And you know, I know we're not always comfortable with that. But when a God has expectations on you. You want to make that go away? You want to turn him into a God who doesn't have any expectations? That's not a solution. Remember this. The people had entered into this relationship in Exodus chapter 19 verse 4. And they promised some things to God. They said they would obey him. Verse, nine, verse 4 in chapter 19 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people. He set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is Exodus chapter 19. This is a short period of time away from Exodus chapter 32. So all the people stand and say, God, you want a relationship with us? Everything you want, we will obey you. And this gets revisited again. Moses goes back up on the mountain and says, hey, everybody's good, God. They all want in on this deal. And so he goes up, gets some more revelation, comes back down to Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So question. 
is, is this the meeting in the Bible where the relationship between God and man is basically dependent upon man's obedience to God? Is, it, is that what's happening right here? That if there's going to be a future in this relationship between this holy God and these sinful men, it's, it's going to basically be kind of like, you know, a, a, a chain relationship. You know, and you guys know the old proverb, a chain is only as strong as it's... So at Mount Sinai, did God install a link in the relational chain between him and man that is made up, the material of it is the obedience and faithfulness of men. Right? So we've got God and his link. And he's awesome. He's never going to fail, right? But then God says, I want to have a relationship with fallen human beings. And the other link in that relationship chain is your obedience, your performance, your good works. Is that what's getting installed right here? Because if that is, this, this thing's going to get in trouble really, really fast. It's not even going to be 40 days before they decide, you know, this is what's inside of our hearts and we just can't seem to control it. He's delayed. It's, it's been a few weeks. There's no word from Moses. So delay begins to eat at them. And then there's fears and concerns. We've been let out here into the wilderness. How will we get provided for? We're supposed to go into this promised land. Who's going to lead us into that? So listen, you know, we don't have those kinds of problems. We've got problems, right? We've got issues that we come up and we stare at. And we said, this is taking too long. There aren't any answers coming from God. And we start to freak out. We look into the future and we say, who's going to lead us into that? How is this going to get ironed out? Because we know there's going to be problems. We know we're going to have a shortage of money or maybe health issues. Or somebody's going to do something wrong in the future. Who's going to fix all that? And so they, they stop looking to God in that moment. And they look to an idol. And they actually make a golden calf that represents what they're going to put their faith in. Now listen, that's not, is that really all that different from us? Because when I ask the question, is there life after idolatry? I really don't want us to worry about too much. I just want us to learn from these guys in the desert. The real question for you and me is, is there life after our idolatry? After you and I have wandered off into some idolatrous practice or belief or activity in our own lives, is there life after that? And idols come in a variety of shapes, sizes, and events. There, there are some here whose idolatry asking that question. There have been drastic and dramatic and destructive idols that have come into your life. And they have wrecked homes. And they have wrecked settled places, careers, relationships. And you have to ask the question in the face of that idol. Is there life after that idol? Or, or maybe there's these subtle, insidious, kind of frequent failure idols that come into our life. No, they're not the loud, destructive ones, but they're just there and they just don't go away. They travel with you day to day. They're moment by moment choices that we make to look to something that's maybe small and doesn't have the same explosive power that that other guys just did. Or maybe there's the habitual, I'll never do it again idol. I got some of those in their life. You just have swore, you have made the ultimate deal, you have been as sincere as sincere could ever be. I will never do that again. And you did. Is there life after that idol? All right, listen, if you don't have any of those idols, you definitely have at least this idol. You have the idol that my idol's not as bad as somebody else's idol, at least. (laughs) At least have that idol operating in me. All right, so... Here, here's the problem. How do, you, how do you solve that? Idolatry is going to invade the human setting. And yet we are in relationship with this God. And so on, on the one end of this relationship, you have a God who is holy 
and he's pure and he's righteous. There's, there's nothing wrong in him at all. There's never a wrong motive or desire or thought. Everything about him is absolutely pure. And then on the other side of this relationship is what the Bible, and just from this one chapter, says we are stiff-necked human beings. That word is just complicated, difficult people. That's what we are. We are capable of sinning a great sin, Moses said. So that, this is what's in the equation here. There's this tension between the people who are like that and a God is like he is. How do, you, how do you alleviate that tension? How do you solve that tension when idolatry breaks out over here and a holy, righteous God is on the other end of that relationship? How do you fix what idolatry breaks in our lives? How do we get from Exodus chapter 32 where idolatry is broken out to Exodus chapter 34 where life continues. We're back on track. Can listen, please don't overlook that in God there is a means that took place between here and here. If there's anything I want you to hear me say is that God didn't just dole out grace that day. Although he did. But he did more than that. And if all you've ever seen as you've looked at the Bible is random acts of kindness on God's part that you can't explain why he does what he does, then you don't know him very well. And you've missed the biggest message of the Bible. How is it that man is going to get to continue with God? God just said, Moses, back away. Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. That's what he just said. And then when we fast forward two chapters later, he's saying, I will go with you. Go ahead and proceed and build the tabernacle. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to do incredible acts that nobody on earth has ever seen. I'm going to bring favor into your life. And where there are enemies in front of you, I'm going to push them out of your way. I'm going to do all that on your behalf. What happened between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34? Well, let's look and see. God, I'm going to say it this way. God imposed his character on our situation. That's what happened. And you start hearing God's character. The moment God's decree from before Moses is get out of my way. Moses begins, as we looked at last week, I believe, Moses begins to intercede and call out to God based on other things that he knows about God. He's not telling God, God, you're not righteous like that. God, you're not holy like that. You're not that kind of God. What he does is he stands and says, no, I understand that you are that kind of God. But I also understand that you are gracious. and You are merciful. And then you are faithful and you have made promises. I understand those things as well. So we start getting in touch with the character of God through Moses' intercession. And then God begins to interact with Moses. And Moses scratches his head in in a moment and says, God, show me. Show me your glory. Now he's been seeing God's glory. As a matter of fact, he's already preached God's glory back to him. But he knows there's more that's there to see. God, show me your glory. I want front row seats for your glory. And God, if you've read this chapter, I'm not going to go back and read all of it. God, Moses, you you can't have front row seats. Nobody can have front row seats. My my being would consume you. But I tell you what, I'm going to put you on the mountain. And I'm going to hide you in a rock, in the cleft of a rock. And then I'm going to let my presence pass by you. And at the very last second, I'm going to pull my hand away from covering you up. And I'm going to let you kind of see the backside of me as I pass. And you're going to get a look at my glory. And that's what's in this passage right here in Exodus 34. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, right? That's just God's name he's proclaiming. It's Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What, what happened between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34? What made it so that this relationship could continue? God made it continue. God stepped in and said, this is what I'm like. And therefore, we can continue. See, there, there wasn't this, you guys need to fix your chain here. Your link has got a problem in it. Matter of fact, if you read this, tell me what the Israelites do to fix this. Just stare into this passage and find me what deal do the Israelites make with God that fixes this? How do you fix idolatry? It's too late. You've already committed it. How do you go back and fix it now? What's your hope? You're going to perform something that undoes that? You're going to pray some prayers and do some good deeds? Listen, I, I'm, I don't want to be too offensive to anybody here because, I, listen, I grew up Catholic, so this was offensive to me long before it was offensive to you. But the idea that I just did something horrendous that sinned against God and that I'm going to somehow make up for it by praying certain prayers and doing certain things, does, does that fix that? And maybe I ought to pray and maybe I ought to do some better things in my life. But does that prescription for me to do that, does that fix that? In their moment of idolatry, I challenge, go back and read this section. They don't get to continue because God sat and waited. You guys do some things to make me feel better about you. You clean your act up a little bit and and I'll consider whether or not I want to continue with you. Because he is going to continue. And he's not going to just randomly continue like he woke up the next day and was in a better mood. Ah, you know what I said yesterday? Listen, don't worry about that. I just, I'm just feeling totally different about it. zippity doo It's a whole new day. The sun will come out tomorrow. That's not how God responded here. The remedy has got to be something else. Something is going to make God continue with these people. I'll make a note here. When you find in the Bible the thought of forgiveness, there's forgiveness being preached all over the Bible. Always remember this. Failure of all of its sorts. Falling short, the Bible uses that term. Rebellion, it uses that term. Departure from God, disobedience. These are all aspects of failing before a God who is holy and righteous. Every act, thought, deed of failure must be forgiven if we're going to continue with God. So whatever happens right here, right? We had this break where God pronounces in Exodus 32, I'm done, Moses, step away. I'm going to wipe them all out. And then, two chapters later, we have this continuance. So whatever was offensive in this moment, and the idolatry was offensive to God, over here, it's, it's not just like God's having a better day. If God is going to continue with them in light of their failures, then their failures, their sins have to be forgiven. And what accomplishes forgiveness? Is forgiveness just this random whimsical act that suddenly God just, for reasons nobody can explain, it's forgiven. Well, the Bible says this. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that would mean that everything that has ever been forgiven by God has had blood associated with it. Everything. Have you been forgiven by God for anything you've done in your life? Why did he do that? Now before you say, well, I don't know, I guess he's just loving he is loving. So you got a piece of that right, but you just don't have all the answer. And if you don't have all the answer, trust me, you will miss the main point of this book. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So you're sitting in this room this morning, and you're, you're pretty sure God's forgiven you? 
Why do you think he's forgiven you? And if your answer doesn't have blood involved with it, then you have a different answer than the Bible gives. And which would mean between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34, blood had to have been involved in forgiveness so that they could continue and go on with God. Well, here's the problem, though. Moses can't huddle with the people and say, hey, everybody come together here real quick. God is hot. He is really not happy about what happened here with this golden calf thing. So, uh, listen, who wants, who wants to volunteer some blood? Because we need to get some forgiveness going on here so that we can keep going with God. I mean, we don't want to be abandoned in the wilderness and do our own thing and face our own enemies and fight for ourselves. We, we need God with us. So, who wants to volunteer some blood for God? Because they know that you have to shed blood to find forgiveness. But there's a problem with that, isn't it? Because all of their blood has something wrong with it. They can shed their blood all they want. All of their blood is tainted blood. Ever since Adam, human blood is tainted blood. It is guilty blood. And you don't really need Adam for that. You would have tainted it yourselves. Right? Which they did. They've already tainted their blood at Mount Sinai. They've already married themselves to idolatry. They've already abandoned God and chosen something else to look for. So their blood is already tainted, right? You got, this is like trying to donate hep C blood, you know? The blood center ain't gonna take it. They, you know, it's like, hey, we, it's tainted, tainted blood. Well, their blood is tainted. So there's no way that Moses can fix this. With any of this blood. So if there's going to be forgiveness. It's going to have to come from some other blood. And this is why we've titled this study of Exodus. The gospel according to Moses. Because the way in which their situation of idolatry is going to get fixed. Is the exact same way that your situation and my situation of idolatry gets fixed. So they model something for us here, and God models something for us here. But what happens in between, it's just the gospel, right? Which we can fast forward to Romans and let it, let it commentate for us. What happened in this mysterious moment between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34? Well, Romans is going to help us. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, listen, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness, the rightness, the completeness, the everything being perfect of God is revealed in the gospel. Notice it doesn't say this, although this is true, but it's not what Romans chapter 1 says. In this gospel, the love of God is revealed. Is the love of God revealed in the gospel? Well, yes. The forgiveness of God is revealed in the gospel. Is that true? Yes. The compassion of God, the mercy of God is revealed in the gospel. Is that true? Yes. But that's not what this says. It says the righteousness of God is revealed, which involves his love and his mercy. And all these things cooperating together in some fashion. So this is not a random moment where God decides on one day I'm righteous, on another day I'm merciful. Righteousness means all of the perfection of God cooperates fully together. Right? So this is what the gospel is. We fast forward, Romans 1 starts with this proclamation. It finds everybody guilty, next, Romans 2. Everybody is guilty before this God and in need of the gospel. And we get to Romans 3, we get a little bit of an explanation and we get a specific explanation of Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ who, for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, that's where he's putting up with stiff-necked people, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of boasting? Well, it is excluded. All right, this is, this is commentary. This, this verse explains what happened between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34. Why is there life after idolatry? Why do these people get to go on with God? Well, this is a commentary on that. Verse 21. Now, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So it's not as though Mount Sinai is this weird moment where God tried an experiment, he did something different for a short season, and then he comes back to the gospel later on. The law and the prophets all bear witness to this same gospel. So when you and I try to figure out, we stand and we hold hands with these people, and we look back at what they've done, their idolatry has greatly offended God, and yet they're going to go on in the promises of God. How do we explain that? Well, this passage is explaining that to us. Look at verse 23. All have sinned and fall short. This is the Romans version of these people are stiff-necked and great sinners. That's how they got labeled. Remember I said it's important to let God label you? Even if you're not comfortable with the labels. All have sinned. And fallen short. That's an important thing for any of us to agree with God about. Because if I'm not in that all. Somehow I've managed to have a high opinion of myself. That I don't need the gospel. In this passage only those who have fallen short need the gospel. Now the Bible says that's all of us. And that's all the people that were at Mount Sinai. Look in verse 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so what happened between Exodus chapter 32 and Exodus chapter 34? They were made right with God as a gift, it wasn't based on their performance. It wasn't because they promised God they'll never do this again. It wasn't because they did enough good things to kind of make good for the bad things that they had done earlier. It was given to them as a gift. A random gift, Keith? Just God just got in a mood and just decided to throw a gift their way? A gift made possible through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that gift given in that moment was looking forward to what Christ did. And it was the basis for God giving that gift to them. You see that in this passage. Where's my slide, man? Thank you. I'm being disappearing my slides on me. We love gifts, right? We love gifts. World religions don't mind gifts. We love the idea that God would suddenly be gracious to us. We love that concept. But when I read the Bible, this is not just some standalone moment where suddenly, for no reason that anybody can figure out, part that we can say, well, God is loving. But God is righteous too. But Keith, he's merciful. And of course he wants to spill mercy on people. But he is holy and just too. So what you can't do is just turn off those other features of God and say, you know what, in this moment, I really like the idea that God would just randomly choose to be merciful to me. I'm going to chase this thought too far, but you know, 
Islam is becoming a, a greater presence in America. And so you're going to hear me talk about it more because the, the concept of what it believes is an approach to God. And there's a belief in Islam that, that Allah is merciful. But if you read the Quran, not even carefully, just casually, you will find that Allah is randomly merciful for reasons that you can't quite figure out. And his mercy is based on your obedience. Well, that's not a good deal after Exodus 32, is it? Because God has said the character of these people, Moses, get away from them. The character of them, they are stiff-necked, obstinate, do their own thing, their own way people. And that's not going away anytime soon. And it doesn't, by the way, right? So if God says, I will be merciful to you after you have been obedient to me, they're done, aren't they? Because they've already been down that road. They already signed on for everything you said, God, we will do. And they failed immediately at doing it. And they're going to fail again at doing it. So if you get mercy by trying hard, if you get mercy by being sincere, then you just installed the human link in a divine relationship and you are going to fail all the time. And your relationship with God will be over because it's ultimate. No matter how great God is, no matter how strong his link is, your relationship with God is based on your contribution. And when you fail, it's done. But when they continue, it's not because they go back and reforge their link and make it a little stronger we got some better materials this time. We put it in the heat. We got rid of some of the dross and we came up with better materials now. Come on, God. Want to try it again? Let's try again, God. Is that what happens between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34? No. God imposes his character. But his character is righteous as well. So, you know, it's kind of like in, in God, the, the currency of God is backed up by something, right? We, I think we used to get that as a nation. I'm not sure what backs up our currency now. But, you know, you used to have Fort Knox and you had gold. And, you know, for every dollar, there was like a dollar's worth of gold, right? Well, the idea that God just comes along and visits Exodus 32 and it's like, whoo, this is bad, this is bad. And he, and he just screams over at the currency printer and says, hey, can you print me some 50s and 100s real quick? Just, yeah, a bunch of them, a bunch of them. Just print them all up. Boom, boom, yeah, uh, mercy and grace. Yeah, print up mercy and grace, print it up. And he just starts flinging mercy and grace dollars down on these people. There's nothing backing that up. That's not how God operates. This is why their redemption, the redemption that is in Christ, is what is backing up what's happened here in Exodus chapter 32. Listen, way too many people have an idea that God is merciful. merciful. He's whimsically merciful. Which is an alteration of the character of God. All you've done is changed God. God doesn't need a savior to step in and do anything he just needs to scream out print some grace dollars and let's just fling it at this bad situation and next time it happens again we'll just fling it at this bad situation again but that's not what god does remember the reason why they're going to continue with god is based in forgiveness and where does forgiveness come from again blood he, just, he doesn't just fling forgi- uh, forgiveness. Boom, there I go, forgiveness. Print up some forgiveness. Uh, you just can't print up some forgiveness. You're going to need to have blood to purchase that forgiveness. Which is the message of the Bible from beginning to end. Somewhere for you and I to be forgiven of anything, blood payment has to be made for this God. This thought from John Piper. He says, that brings us to one last question with the Mosaic Covenant leaves unanswered. How can so much grace be dispensed under this covenant? How can a righteous God simply forgive iniquity? 
and transgression and sin. How can a judge just let guilty sinners go free? Surely the sacrifices of bulls and goats are no just satisfaction for all the dishonor heaped on God's name by Israel's sins. Again, the answer lies in the future. Isaiah saw it most clearly and said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How could a just God under the Mosaic covenant be so gracious and forgive so freely? Answer, he looked forward to the coming of his son and the sacrifice that repairs all the injury done to God's honor through the disobedience of the elect. There could have been no covenant with Abraham, no covenant with Moses, no covenant, new covenant without the coming of Jesus Christ. What was freely given under Moses was purchased by Christ. What was freely given, that gift given in this time span, right in here between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34, what was freely given was purchased by Christ. So the sins that were committed right here, God didn't randomly decide, whoo, today's Forgiveness Friday. Tell them all, they're good. Forgiveness Friday. Good thing that they send on a Friday. God stares at their sin and in his ability, because God stands outside of time and space, he picks up their sin and he places it, for us, it's way in the future, on his son and sheds his blood so that he can take this gift of forgiveness back to this setting now and give it to them and continue on with them. See, this is how God does relationships with stiff-necked, fallen human beings. It's right here at Mount Sinai. Piper goes on and says, Consider these two things. First, every Forgiven sin from Adam to the end of the age was laid on the innocent Christ and crushed him to hell. He accepted it willingly for the glory of his father and the good of his people. Second, if you trust him and follow him in the obedience of faith, then you are the heirs not only of God's covenant with Abraham, but also God's covenant through Moses. You are God's special possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. God opposes your enemies with wonder-working power. And to you, he is now and always will be the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now go back to this passage here in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 23. I think I need my other slide here. All right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Whom God put forward. When this breakdown in the relationship between man and God takes place, where does the fix come from? From man? Is this something that man put forward? from God it is God who puts forward his son and accomplishes this redemption as a propitiation by his blood right that word propitiation I know you just used it the other day over breakfast Um, it, it, it quite simply is a word that means to be satisfied and it's aimed at God Jesus Christ did something that satisfied, satisfied what? The righteousness of God, because that's what the gospel reveals. So there's something in God that must be satisfied by blood being shed so that forgiveness can be given. Forgiveness never comes to a human being apart from that transaction. Because you can't shed anybody else's blood but perfect blood. And there was only one who had perfect, untainted blood. And it was the Son of God. 
So how, how does this fix come to these people? Well, well, God puts forward. Do they fix their situation? No, they do not. And they cannot. So they must look to God to fix it. And he does. And he provides what they need. And then the scripture goes on and says, it was to show his righteousness. So please love that word. Please love the word righteousness. The Bible loves that word. The Bible has said all that's been done in this gospel story was to reveal the righteousness of God. So, so please don't get put off by that. Like, you know, like that's a word that means stiff and hard and unrelenting. God took that hardness, unrelentingness element of him and he visited on his son. So you still get to not be the recipient of that. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. He might be just. God wants to be just. So in this moment of idolatry in Exodus 32, God wants to be just. And you get a taste of that when he says, Moses, get away from them. I'm going to give them what they deserve. You ever ask God to be fair? You might want to visit this passage before you pray that way ever again. All right. Exodus 32 verse 10 is a fair moment with God. That's what fairness looks like with God. Get away from me and let me wipe them out. Let me give them what they deserve. That's fairness. But instead, God wants to be just in this moment. But I thought he wanted to be merciful. He does. I thought he wanted to be gracious and kind. He does. Very much. I thought he loved these people extremely. Yes. But he wants to be just. And he will be both just and the justifier. Man cannot fix himself. Man cannot put back together the broken relationship between themselves and God. You and I can't do it either, ever. It's only by God being both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? I guess it's wiped out, isn't it? Because you can't stand here in Exodus 34 like a bunch of people who now they're going to stick their chest out and say, that's right, we fixed this. And God had to keep going with us. Bring it on, let's keep going now. Into the promised land. Uh, They stand in Exodus 34 scratching their heads trying to figure out why that kind of God would spend another minute with us. That's what's happening in Exodus 34. Where is boasting? It's annihilated. It is wiped out. But here's what gets wiped out with boasting. And boy, we as modern people could, could use a revelation in this category. What also gets wiped out by this, if we'll just understand it, is what I'm going to call self-fixing insecurity gets wiped out by that as well. You know what self-fixing insecurity is? It's that sense that sits inside of you that you haven't done enough to make God right with you. You haven't measured up. You haven't fixed what you did wrong. Right? For, for some of you that are here this morning, who your, your idol, your calf, was a massively dramatic and destructive act on your part that everybody got to know about, that you wonder if that's your new character, that's who you are, it wrecked your family, it did something horrible. Listen... There's an insecurity that comes with the idea that what do you need to do to fix that? You cannot fix it. You cannot fix it. Exodus 32 cannot be fixed by men. And if that's not your idolatry issue, if your idolatry issue is just on a regular basis, on a casual day-to-day basis, I just keep giving in to this little nagging set of sins and they just travel with me. Boy, I hate that it happens, but it keeps on happening. Uh, what fixes that? Now, I'm, I'm not even talking about here. Does that mean I'll never be obedient again? Totally different subject. 
God did expect obedience from them. But he doesn't look to their obedience to fix the brokenness, now does he? He doesn't take Moses and stand in Exodus 32 and say, Moses, if they don't get it together, I'm going to wipe those suckers out. You go down there and tell them they better pull their grades up from F's to A's. And I mean quick. That's not how God fixes that. But does that mean God doesn't care about our, our obedience? No, he does care about our obedience. He called them to be obedient. And that's the whole rub, isn't it? Because you're aware of that, aren't you? You're aware of that in this moment. You're going to continue on with a God. And you know you do fit the classification of stiff-necked, difficult creature. So you could be facing this again, couldn't you? Yeah. And you get this little insecure thing that you haven't done enough to fix it. Or you've done too much wrong to fix it. You, you need this verse. This is the gospel according to Moses. You need to see if you have any hope of having your own Exodus 34 that keeps going with God. It's going to have to be based on God. It cannot be based on you. Eric, why don't you go ahead and come back up. All right, here's what I want us to do. No one needs to raise their hand for this, but I know it's true uh, just because too many conversations through too many years. You know, when your sin begins to, to smell to you like a rotten egg and the, the blind adventure, the hyper-selfishness of your own heart has sort of worn off and, and now this thing is just disgusting to you. And you can't seem to shake it completely. Get it behind you. This becomes a paralyzing thing for some. Because for some people it's like you just can't go on. You just live at that setting. And and you, you can't go on because you have installed something in your own life that's trying to fix what only God can fix. And what God does in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is to be received by faith, not earned by obedience. It's received by faith. So, so is there life after idolatry? Abraham was an idolater. Do you remember him? He lived his life as an idolater. And the only reason why that ever changed course was not because Abraham got his life together. It was because God showed up in Ur of the Chaldees and chose him and imposed his own character on Abraham. And said, Abraham, I will have mercy on whom I'm going to have mercy and I'm having it on you. How could he have mercy on an idolater? Because he was looking forward to the redemption that was in Christ. And he exercised that through mercy on Abraham and called him. How does Israel go on from Exodus 32? There's life after idolatry for them. There's life after David's idolatry. David is a, quite a reference point in the Bible. Full of amazing stuff and disgusting stuff as well. The dude, the dude had some kind of sex addict problem. I mean, let's call it what it, we would call it today. They didn't call it that back then. That's what you call it today. So much so that he acts on his impulses and his pornography came to him by staring out the window of his chalet that was a little higher than everybody else's so he could see down and check people out. He was a voyeurist. So he's checking them out, lusting after them. But his lusts have gone to the next level. He can't tell his lust, no, this is a big deal. This is a big controlling idol in his life. So he can, creates a scheme. Gets this woman to himself. Acts on his thoughts. Doesn't just look at her and lust after. He actually acts on it. And has her husband killed to cover it up. All right, this is not your daily stumble, is it? This is a dramatic, drastic idol. David, how... Do you go on after that? David, is there life after spiritual adultery? 
Now, if you've read David's story, you already know the answer, right? Yes. Yes. Thank God. Yes. Why? Because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. David's hope was the same hope you and I have today. So I want to appeal to you. I want want you to listen and, and feel something from God this morning because... I know this many people in a room together, boy, we, we've, got, we've got our golden calf issues. We, we have severely broken our agreement with God. Perhaps with our wives or husbands or with other people that are in our lives as well. Is there life after that for you? Now you tell me right now. Objectively, you tell me. Don't tell me what your feelings are telling you right now. Right? Can I take you out of Exodus 32, put you in a cart and pull you over here to Exodus 34 and set you down and say, okay, based on what you know now, is there life after your idolatry? What are you going to say to me? Yes. As much as I can't believe why there would be, as much as my emotions saying, I don't deserve it. Yes, there's life after I can keep going with God. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. No matter what happened in Exodus 32 for you. The same act of God that rescues them rescues you today. And the same hope is available to you. And the promised land still awaits you. Let's stand up together. Lord, for some this morning, we're going to need some grace from you this morning to venture into very sensitive terrain, haunting terrain, things that have been done, choices that have been made, destruction that has been brought. And the argument from our lives is there's there's no way to keep going with God, not after what I've done or not after what I keep on doing. But God, your ways are not like our ways. And as quickly as these Israelites brought destruction on themselves, You dispensed mercy and grace and forgiveness. And they continued with you. As much as what their actions should have done, and you made it clear, it should have cost them your presence. You should have never continued with them another day. It should have ruined any hope that they had that their enemies would be defeated in front of them. That great signs and wonders would be done in their midst they should have forfeited all of that and yet they did not nor we are thousands of miles removed and thousands of years removed from Mount Sinai God we showed up here this morning with our own chapter of a golden calf that seems to keep on haunting us God, you have done something. God, I pray this morning for those who right now feel and hear the voices of these failures and these departures and these acts of disobedience. Lord, they're crystal clear. They speak. They're faithful to show up on a regular basis. They're discouraging. But Lord, by faith, because you are a God who is glorious in all category because you are a God who is righteous. Everything you do is right. So you are right to be just, but your justice has been satisfied. And you are right to be pure and have a standard that is absolutely perfect. But 
that standard has been satisfied. This morning, God, we just want to come into agreement with you. We want to stop making our golden calf bigger than you are, greater than you are, more of an anchor. Lord, thank you that the future of the people of Israel wasn't right there with that golden calf for the rest of their lives at the foot of that mountain. God, they're going to keep going. And God, I pray for awareness this morning, faith in our hearts, grace to be received, to keep going. Keep going. Can you hear God telling you that? Keep going. Keep going with me. I have days ahead for you. I am with you. I'm going to perform wonders and signs in your life. I'm going to bring you into promises that I've made to you. I'm going to make good on all those things that I promised for you. Can you hear God tell you that? Can you hear him tell you that your golden calf didn't stop him from being God to you? Your craving in your own heart, your own motivations and reasons weren't so great that it stopped God from being God to you any longer. Can you receive that from him? It's almost like I have this sense that some of you need to, to take that leash that you're on. It's around your neck and it's attached on the other end to that golden calf in your life. And you need need to walk over right now and unhook it. Unhook it. And go on. God intended you to go on. Stop letting that thing be a loud and even louder voice than God's. There is redemption. There is a new day This gift of God's mercy was purchased at the price of his son, his blood, his life. And he gives this gift to you. Not frivolously, intentionally paid for. Open the gift. Live in the gift. Walk in this gift. Draw near to this God. This God who is this amazing, this wonderful. Get near him this morning. And move from this day forward. I want you to have a sense right now in your heart. Unhook that chain and start walking right now. Start walking and start seeing distance between you and that calf. Start believing there is a day because of who God is. There is a day in my life. There is a future in my life. Lord, this is, this is gospel good news. Lord, there's no other news like it. God, there's no other religion out there offering this kind of news. You've made it clear in your word. So Father, we are a people here this morning receiving your grace, but receiving your righteousness, which does away with this claim that this calf had on us. God, for that we are thankful. For that our heart sings. For that our future is bright. And we have steps ahead of us. So Lord, fill us this morning. And move us forward, God. Give us new terrain and new places to live in. Give us liberty from the past. Give our heart joy as we set our hope in you. could remember no wrongs we have done omniscient all knowing he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the His mercy is more Stronger than darkness New every morn Our sins they are many His mercy is more What patience would wait as we constantly roam what fire 
Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath the debt we could never afford our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the lord his mercy is more Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Thank you for your mercy, Jesus. It covers us with your blood and gives us a hope and a future. Well, the final word is not our sin. The final word is your grace and your mercy, God. Lord, so help us, help your church to, to trust in this hope, Lord, to trust in your, your forgiving blood this week. Lord, let that, let that find its way into our actual lives this week where we trust you, God, where we're not chained to sin. Lord, that's not who we are. Lord, we have been released from sin. Lord, so let us walk in that freedom this day, we pray in your name. Amen.